So our reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll read the first five verses of that chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required by stewards that one be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. We are glad you're here, and we appreciate you being a part of our assembly this morning. Most people uh, in this congregation, I'm certain, would know that our young people and their sponsors left this morning for camp. Uh, We uh, look forward to hearing good reports about the time that they're there and look forward to them being back home when uh, they can share some stories with us of what the week was like. I know you'll want to keep praying for them uh, throughout the week. I hope also that you will uh, want to come back at 6 o'clock tonight when we assemble to worship again. Uh, We'll be looking at an incident from the life of David, uh, one that we don't really look at very much, but one that teaches some great lessons about uh, moving from tragedy to triumph. And I hope that you'll come and share that time with us. When, when you read the letters addressed to churches of the New Testament, it seems that none of those churches struggled as much or with as many problems as did the one meeting in the city of Corinth. The very first of those problems in the letter, the initial letter, which Paul dealt with in that first letter, involved factions or divisions within the church. Rather than being a united body of believers, they were in fact a splintered group. Somewhat ironic that we uh, might think uh, that the problems that we face in the church come from outside of the church, but sometimes the problems come within the church because of those in the church. Now, there was a reason for the problems in Corinth. The disciples were carnally minded instead of being spiritually minded. In fact, Paul addresses this, and if your Bible is open, and I hope it is, to chapter 3, you will notice at the beginning of chapter 3, the apostle writes, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. And then in verse 3 he says, For you are still carnal, worldly, fleshly minded. Before you're in Christ, it's understandable that you are worldly or fleshly minded. But when you come into Christ, that's supposed to change. And unfortunately for the Corinthians, it had not changed as much as it should have, and they were not being spiritually minded. Now there was clear evidence of that. It was seen in the fact that some were claiming allegiance to Paul 
and some to Apollos, and others to Peter, and yes, even some were saying, I am of Christ, chapter 1, verse 12. Paul pointed out the folly of that kind of thinking by asking a series of questions, very simple questions, but very straightforward. Chapter 1, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians, the apostle says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He had no doubt what the answer to those questions would be. They were not asked informationally. They were asked to probe the people's real thinking. And of course, the answers certainly were no, no, and no. Christ is not divided. Paul was never crucified for anybody. And nobody had been baptized into the name of Paul. And so Paul needed to deal immediately with this particular problem. There would be other problems throughout the book he had to deal with. But this one had to be dealt with first. And in order to do that, he had to correct some erroneous ideas. And so he carefully sets forth in the early part of the letter the true nature of the gospel. And he also clarified the proper place of the men who preach the gospel. And he understood that if the Corinthians could be made to understand those two things, how God's wisdom is seen in the message of His Word, and how those who proclaimed that message, the messengers of the Word, were to be viewed, it would go a long way toward eliminating the tension that seemed to be pulling apart the Corinthian Christians. We don't have the time this morning uh, to, to look at the entirety of Paul's argument. But I want us to focus on what you heard Stan read just a few minutes ago uh, from chapter 4. P Paul insists in chapter 4, that he and his fellow laborers are to be thought of as servants and stewards. Uh, that's chapter 4, verse 1. Notice again. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. It's uh, not seen in the English uh, version, but if you were to look at the original language, the Greek language... The word servant is sometimes used by Paul and others to indicate a, a, a bond servant, a slave. That's not the word he uses here. He uses a different word for servant. But it really doesn't make any difference because whether it is a hired servant or whether it is an indentured servant, a bond servant, doesn't make any difference. What do you expect from a servant? You expect obedience. You expect a servant to do what he's supposed to do. And what quality do you expect to find in a steward or a household manager, which is what a steward is? How, how is one who's supposed to take care of effects uh, in, in a household? How do you want him to live? Well, you expect him to be faithful, to have faithfulness, to be trustworthy. Look in, in verse 2 again. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. 
If someone wanted to be a real steward and do the job that a steward was supposed to do, he had to be faithful in the job. But the question is, who's going to be the judge of that? Who's going to determine whether a steward is really faithful? Well, Paul answers that question in verses 3 and 4. He says, but with me is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. I think you note here as you read these few verses that Paul shows us there are three different tribunals or courts by which we could be judged. And what we need to understand is, do they have the same authority? Are they equal in authority? We're going to look at them for the next uh, few minutes, the Lord willing. Let's start with the, with the court of personal evaluation. Now, this is actually mentioned second by Paul. I know that. But we're going to consider it first. And the reason I do that is because the first judgment of our actions actually comes from within us. Who judges, first of all, whether we're doing right or wrong? We do. If you look at uh, verse 3 again, the second part of the verse, uh, uh, Paul would say, I do not even judge myself. And then he says at the beginning of verse 4, For I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. Paul understood, just as we all understand, that you can approve or disapprove of your own actions. And he could have done that. But he also knew that personal judgment could be faulty. In his own mind, he had a clear conscience. However, he knew that this did not guarantee him a right standing by God. And he knew it by sad experience. If you have your Bible again, turn to Acts 26 for just a moment. I want you to look at what Luke records Paul saying as he stands before Agrippa. Luke, uh, Acts 26, I'm sorry, Acts 26, beginning at verse 9. Luke records Paul saying this, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus Christ. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul very honestly and openly says what he did. He had, he had tried to cause havoc in God's church. He had persecuted the saints. And yet, if you were to go back just a few chapters to Acts 23, as he stood before a Jewish council... In verse 1, he would say, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Paul wasn't being deceitful when he said that. He was being absolutely honest. And when you combine the two statements, you see that Paul thought he was doing right when he was really doing wrong. He was fully convinced in his own mind that that is the kind of thing he should have been doing. He should have been persecuting the church. He should have been trying to put Christians to death. But he was absolutely wrong in that. I don't think that means that your conscience doesn't matter. 
Because it does. When we violate our conscience, we sin. When we do what we think we shouldn't do, we sin. But what this really means is that we should never depend entirely on our conscience to determine if we're correct in what we're doing to serve God. Conscience is not the final court. Conscience by itself cannot establish right or wrong. And so personal evaluation may have some value to it when we obey our conscience and when we're doing right, but it's not a guarantee that it is right. The second court is the court of public evaluation. Again, look at the beginning of verse 3. Paul would say, but with me it's a very small thing if I should be judged by you or by human court. If you Corinthians think you can judge me or if you want to put me before some group of people who form a human court, that doesn't matter to me, Paul would say. Now, he was aware that others would and, and could judge him. How should he feel about that? How should we feel about the way others see us or view us? Well, I think all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, would like to have the approval of others. And Paul certainly was not different from you and me in that. He wanted others to approve of him as well. That's the normal human action. We like for people to approve of what we're doing. He showed in his own life that he placed a high value on the approval of his actions by others. And we see that in several of his letters. To the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 10, the apostle would write, You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. Paul wanted the Thessalonians to understand that it did matter to him the way he behaved in front of them. He thought it was important. In taking up money for the poor saints in Jerusalem, he showed concern for how that particular event was viewed. 2 Corinthians 8, beginning at verse 20, says, Avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us, notice, providing honorable things not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We're not just concerned about how the Lord looks at us. We're concerned about how others look at us as well. Paul also emphasized in 2 Corinthians to this same group of people that we're talking about this morning that Christians are living letters. And he wrote in chapter 3 and verse 2 of 2 Corinthians, known and read by all men. People look at us and they see what we do and they make decisions about what we do. I think it's a sad thing, and I hope you do too, that some... People read only what they see in us as Christians who are supposed to believe in God's Word and act as Christians. In other words, it's sad that that's all they know. They, they may know a little bit about the Bible, enough to know generally, when we don't behave the way Christians ought to behave. And, and, and in, in fact, sadly, it is a tool against us many times when somebody can point out that the kind of life that some Christian lives that's not in harmony with what we're supposed to be like. How do people read us? 
What do people in the community think of you when they see you and when they see your actions? Colossians 4, verse 5, Paul would tell Christians in Colossae, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside redeeming the time. But to make the best use of it so that people don't see faults in us any more than they can see. But in spite of all of that, and in spite of the fact that that is true, that we want the approval of others, the approval or disapproval of men is not the final verdict when it comes to doing right or doing wrong. People can say we're wrong when we're right. The most notable example of that, of course, is Jesus Himself. Our Lord came and lived perfectly and did exactly what God wanted Him to do on this earth, and yet there were people who called Him a blasphemer and a wine-bibber and other things that were not true. So we can be doing right and people think we're wrong. But people can also say we're right when we're wrong. If somebody thinks that what we're doing is what they like to see in us, then they could say they have to be all right because that's what I approve of. Doesn't necessarily mean we're right. We have to remember God's warning to Samuel when he went to the house of Jesse to anoint a new king. God would say to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, that is, the sons of of Jesse, because I have refused him, for the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. People can praise the actions and the activities of some groups or people in groups, but they can be absolutely wrong in it. So there's only one other court. If it's not the court of your personal evaluation or public evaluation, then it has to be the court of God's evaluation. And that's what Paul says in verse 4, the second part of the verse. He says, but he who judges me is the Lord. The one we really stand before, the one who really makes a difference in approval or disapproval is God himself. And this is the supreme court of all spiritual behavior and all spiritual activities. Self-judgment and the the judgment of others may have some merit to them. But in the end, it's only the judgment of God that really matters. God's judgment, and the reason it matters in God's case, is that it's always correct. I can judge myself wrongly. Others can judge me wrongly. God will never judge me wrongly. He knows all things. He has all wisdom. And because of this, He never makes a mistake in judgment. You know, sometimes it's, it's a little bit strange when people think that there are going to be people at the judgment day who will be judged unfairly. It's not going to happen. Every person who should be saved will be saved. Every person who should be lost will be lost because God is the judge and He makes no mistakes. He doesn't just apply the law. He's the one who gave it. He doesn't just read the law. He is the one who issued the law. It's His law. Now Paul knew that a day of judgment was coming. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, 
he tells this same group of people, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. In 1 Corinthians Corinthians 4, Stan read verse 5 earlier. And and the statement is to judge nothing before the time. That is, don't don't make wrong judgments. Don't don't think that your judgment is the real judgment. But he says, uh, when the Lord comes, who will bring... Uh, both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart, then each one's praise shall come from God. God will know everything, and hidden things unknown to us uh, will come to light. And the truth is, God will have known them all along. They've never been hidden from God. Everything you and I have ever ever done is not a secret. God has known our every action. But notice this also in the same verse. Paul reminds his readers that the Lord will reveal the counsels of the heart. God not only knows what happens, he knows why it happened. He knows what the motivation was behind it. And on that great day, Paul informs us each one's praise shall come from God. That is, when God makes the declaration that we are right, if he can make that declaration because it's true, then That's the final verdict. There will be no change in that. And better than approving ourselves or having others approve us, God will grant His approval for those He judges to be His own people. You know, in our court system, we understand that all courts have their place. Some of those courts have greater authority than other courts. And we might call self-judgment and the judgment of others, small claims court. Because they really, although they have value, they're not the final determiner of right or wrong. And when you compare them to God's court, the Supreme Court, then you'll see that His judgment is what really matters most. That is why you and I must determine to make our lives what He wants them to be. We don't serve just for ourselves and what we think is best. We don't serve just for others what they think is best. We serve for God. We go back again to 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. For we must all, you see the word there, all, everyone. We must, every one of us, appear before the judgment seat of Christ that we may receive the things that we've done in the body according to what we've done, whether good or bad. The record will be there, it will be available, it will be clearly seen. And the probing question this morning for us is, are you prepared to stand before the judge, the real judge, the only judge who matters? If you're not, you need to use this occasion as an opportunity to make your life right with God. If you're not a Christian... You need to yield in submission to the will of Christ by putting your faith in Him as the Son of God, the only Savior of the world, the one to whom we must bow in allegiance. You must uh, turn away from the sins that you've committed, making that mental determination. I'm not going to live like I've been living. I'm going to go a different direction. And with that, to confess before men your faith in Him as the Son of God. 
and then allow yourself to be immersed in water so your sins can be washed away. If you haven't done that, would you like to do it this morning? And if you're a Christian and you're not living as you should, even if you approve your own actions, even if others approve them, if God doesn't approve them, then you're not right. Come back and let us help you by praying with you and for you. If you need to come, do it while we stand and sing.